We live in a world that doesn't always understand grief, but we do. We see you, we hear you, and we're here to talk about grief in the most real of ways, because we have lived with it too. In this podcast, we'll look at ways to integrate grief into a life that is fulfilling and meaningful for you. There'll be no platitudes or silver linings, but there may be the occasional F-bomb. I'm coach John Polo, and my person died. I'm coach Carolyn Gower, and my person died too. Oh my goodness, oh my gracious, we are back after seven long months. We are I'm back. Here with, we, are, we are back. That is the voice of Carolyn Gower. So, if you have listened to our podcast before, you know that we have been gone for seven months. Um, and there's a very good reason that we were not here. So in March of this year, as I was preparing to go to Camp Widow, I started getting some very scary messages um, from your kids. And you had quite the health scare. So I'm going to just shut up here for a few minutes, which I rarely do. <laughs> Tell us what was going on. What happened to you, Carolyn? Yes. So... March is pretty much the worst month of the year for me. It's the year that uh, the month that Tony died. It's a month that, you know, all the bad stuff happened for that month leading up to his death. So March this year, everything was actually looking really good. We'd released our book. Um, everything was going well in my life. And I was excited. And I had the opportunity to go to Adelaide, which is in South Australia, with my daughter Kayla and her partner Dave and the grandkids for five days. And as it worked out, John, you were heading off to Camp Widow. So I thought, you know what, I'm just going to do it, you know, a bit of self-care before the anniversary coming up. Just say yes, just do it. So off I went to Adelaide with them. We had a absolutely amazing five days together, you know, lots of memories and good times. Came back on the Saturday night, everything was good. On the Monday morning, so John, you and I were going to have a call that day to discuss you yep. coming to Australia. Yep. And I was super, super excited about that, of course. And then, so I woke up Monday morning and I thought, shit, you know, I feel, I feel pretty sick. So I messaged you and I was just actually looking back through my messages today to say, what in the hell did I say to you? And, and yeah, I, I said, you know, Hey, I'm feeling pretty sick. I'm going to need to reschedule our call. So that was okay. Thinking, you know, maybe we'll just do the call the next day. Then I remember getting out of bed that afternoon to get a drink. I felt really, really thirsty. So I've got out of bed staggered down the passage to get a drink so I've guzzled down this drink and that's the last thing I can remember so that was Monday afternoon and then after that apparently my daughter Kayla and my mum were trying to call me trying to text me and I wasn't answering which is not like me at all even if I'm really sick I'll still answer them and I, that yeah that's when I told Allie I was like something's not right yeah because she didn't answer me and it's been like 12 hours I'm like something yeah. yeah this is not Carolyn but go no. ahead. 
No, no, I'm usually on the ball with yeah. that. So yeah. it's apparently it got to five o'clock on the Tuesday, so the following day, and Kayla was just feeling like something wasn't right. So she's decided to come and check on me with Matt, my son, and they found me in bed, completely out of it, delirious, not making sense, burning up. So they've called the ambulance straight away and you know a heap of paramedics came the mica unit came and were checking me out um got me off to hospital um said I was septic I was very very sick at that stage I don't recall any of this at all I wasn't unconscious but I wasn't with it at all so I don't remember any of this I do remember several hours later I briefly woke in hospital and they were asking me the name of my kids and I just didn't know, I could not find in my mind the names of my kids. So that was pretty scary. And then I remember looking over and Kayla and Matt were sitting beside me and said a couple of things and I was really out of it. And then that was it. The next thing I remember was the next day, which would have been the Wednesday. And I briefly recall a doctor saying to me, you're going to have surgery but you might not be awake for two days. I'm thinking, oh, shit, you know, what's what do you mean I won't be awake for two days? And I just remember saying, well, you better let my kids know because I don't want them to worry. And that's all I remember. And mm. the next thing I knew, I woke up almost a month later in a hospital called the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne, which is two hours away from where I live. So, um, yeah, I woke up and didn't know what on earth was going on, but I had apparently at that stage been told I'd had, I had this thing called necrotizing fasciitis. No idea what it was. Um, turns out it's a flesh eating bacteria. It's deadly. There's a very high mortality rate. Um, I nearly died twice during that time. My family was told to say goodbye. I'd had about 13 surgeries at that stage to remove the dead skin tissue. I'd had hours upon hours in the hyperbaric chamber. So all this stuff I, happened. And I didn't I know no that idea. they, yeah, I didn't know they were uh, told to say goodbye. I missed that part. Yeah. 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 They no were idea. actually told to say their goodbyes, yeah. my whole family in the first few days. So, um, yeah, it's pretty surreal thinking that all this has happened. I have no recollection and I'm getting all these blank spots filled in. Even now there's things I'm finding out that, you know, I had no idea about. Yeah. I mean, I'm at Camp Widow and I'm getting messages from your kids. And I mean, I definitely thought like you were going to pass away. Um, I talked to two people there about the very little information that I had. And it was Nancy Salzman, who yeah. we interviewed from the podcast. Um, I'm pretty close with her and Michelle Neff Fernandez. And I just remember sitting there with Michelle Neff Fernandez and she's like, what is going on? And I'm like, I don't know. Like she has some kind of like bacteria or something, I, some virus. And I just remember telling her basically like, yeah, I don't think she's going to pull through. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah, apparently they really didn't think that I was going to pull through. And, and um, you know, as I 
was waking up and and the nurses and the doctors are just like, wow, we cannot believe you've made it through this. You're a miracle. And, you know, I was just oblivious to it all at that stage. Do you remember anything about like being in the coma? I don't even know how to ask that question. Yeah, look, that's something that everyone has been asking me, you know, what happens when you're in a coma? So for me, um, I don't know if this happens to everyone, um, this, this sort of thing, but in my case, I was living in a completely alternate world. So, John, as we said, we were going to have a call at that time. We'd had a few discussions about you coming to Australia to present together at Camp yeah. Widow in August. So um, that must have been on my mind. So in my mind, um, I was sitting in a hotel room in Sydney, not sure why it was Sydney. So I'm sitting on this couch waiting for your flight to land, waiting to meet you for the first time in real life. And while I'm sitting there, this stupid, annoying voice kept coming in, bugging me. And I thought I'd like had a um, scam app or something on my phone that was doing this stupid voice every now and again. And it'd squeeze my hand and a female voice would say, Carolyn, you're in the Alfred Hospital. Um, you know, we're here with you. You'll be okay. Squeeze my hand if you can feel me. And I was trying to squeeze this hand. I don't know if I was or not. Then a bit later on, another voice would come in and say, and squeeze my other hand super, super tight that really hurt and say, can you feel this? Does this hurt? And I was just getting so annoyed. I don't know if I said anything, but I was just, you know, fuck off and leave me alone. I'm waiting for Johnny Poo. You know? <laughs> what are you doing in my hotel room? You're I'm not that man. special. Once you meet me in person for the first time, you'll <laughs> you'll realize that. <laughs> well, funny thing was, in, in this dream state, I guess, you were this huge celebrity. So you had bodyguards and, you know, all this. So I had to go through this huge process to actually, you know, get to meet you. And I'm saying, but John and I are friends. Like he knows <laughs> me. And this. so they eventually came back and said, okay, John's approved to have a visit with you and come with me. But the scary thing was that this guy took me up this dark alleyway and in this dream state, he raped me. And I, you know, I didn't see John, I didn't see anyone. Like, you know, I just I was raped. And that was the end of that story. I don't can't remember anything else happening with that story. And it was super scary. It was it was horrible. It was really, really horrible. I remember feeling horrible for ages. And I actually even thought I put it on Facebook look out for this guy because he raped me. He took me up an alleyway and raped me. And then when I did wake up, I thought, shit, did I put that on Facebook? You know, what? what's happened? It was so confusing. So that was one of the things that happened in the coma. The other thing that happened that was really traumatic was I was trying to find my parents and I heard that they had gone to visit these people, this other a couple that they apparently knew that I knew nothing about. So I've tracked them down and I found them at this house in the middle of nowhere. And I found my mum and I said, where's dad? And no one could tell me where my dad was. But 
I was suspicious that these people that they were with had murdered him and mum didn't know and I couldn't get any information. So there was all this story going on around that I thought my dad had been murdered. And once again, you know, that was really traumatic and scary during that time. So they're the main stories that I can remember during my coma. I, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, that in itself is beyond horrible. Like just, if you think about just having a dream of being the victim of that type of violence or then the dream, a normal dream of having your parent like being murdered, like this type of stuff is horrific and traumatic on its own if you just have a dream about it let alone yeah. if it really happens in real life to somebody right yeah. but then to be in a coma and to have this happen so you're fighting for your life and now you're dealing with all this other traumatic shit going through your brain through going through your heart Whew, that's heavy yeah and what i've since been told is that when you're in a coma it's not like a dream where you're just dreaming it and you wake up and oh yeah that was a dream it's more real. It involves um, all your senses. So when you do recall it, it feels like it really happened. Do you, I mean, obviously we're both coaches and we can both talk a little bit about trauma, but neither, neither of us is like a trauma specialist, right? Is that true of you too? You're not, right? Um, I've, I've studied trauma quite a bit. So okay. I guess you could say I'm trauma informed. Okay, right. So I can help on the edges with trauma. I'm not a trauma specialist by any means. Are you seeking, do you need support for that at this point? I have been those getting, things? getting some support okay. through that through a psychologist that I've known for a long time okay, since good. Um, before Tony died, we both saw her and, and someone good. I feel very comfortable with. And so, you know, I have been doing a bit of work on that and it's much better now. Good. Um, I did remember it all when I first woke up and then I must've kind of blocked it out for a while. And it was only probably maybe six, eight weeks ago that it's all come back to me. And I thought, Oh shit, you know, that happened. And it hit me really right. hard then. So I think my body had pushed it to the side while I was, had so much other physical work to do to recover. And right. then, you know, it's come back and at the time where I've needed to work through that and, and I have been, and I guess it's a bit about understanding that it wasn't real. Right. And I don't need to keep revisiting, revisiting it to mm -hmm. go through what happened and understand it because it wasn't real. So I do right. a lot of grounding work to bring myself back to the present and that sort of thing. Right. Right. You, we did a whole episode about signs. Yeah. So for all the people that don't believe in them and we respect their opinion. There are a lot of people who do believe in signs. You and I believe in signs. Um, did Tony, who, if you're a new listener is your deceased husband, did Tony pop into your coma at, at any point? Did he come and visit? Well, he didn't. Um, which that was the first thing I was trying to recall when I became more with it. I couldn't remember seeing him and I took that as a sign that he was saying, okay, you're not coming here, get away. Like you've got shit to do. You're not ready for this. Go back and do your thing. But then something happened just last week that 
really through me. And it sort of made me question whether I did have some sort of contact with him during the coma. So I was watching a TV show last week and there was a couple that were kind of um, kidnapped and and um, put away in this old building and the female escaped and she was exhausted so she collapsed under a tree because she was in the middle of nowhere and her her partner who was still trapped in the building was coming to her like in a dream and he was saying get up get up wake up get moving you know get help sort of thing and the whole time this I was watching this it was like this feels really familiar this it just sent a shiver right through my body and it felt really like something I'd been through and next thing he yelled out in her mind get up really loud and I just started shaking because in my head I could hear Tony's voice yelling at me, go back. And I thought, whoa. So I guess I'm not really sure if that happened when I was in the coma, but it just felt really familiar, like I was remembering something that he was telling me to go back. I don't know if you remember this. I think on our first call, after you got out of the coma, you were still in the hospital, all wired up and everything. And we did a call and you, I'm pretty sure you told me that. Oh, like, really? I'm pretty sure you told me that. I, I could be wrong in the way I'm phrasing this, but I'm pretty sure you told me that like, you felt like you had a choice. Yeah. Whether or not you were going to go or not, but that like Tony told you you're staying. I, I could have swore you told me that. Yeah, Maybe I'm well, hallucinating I, right now. <laughs> I most likely did because I know we had that call. I remember we had a call. I don't remember anything that we spoke about. I remember seeing your face and just mm-hmm. crying because I was so happy to see you. It's not that bad, my friend. It's not that bad. <laughs> <laughs> crying with joy, happiness, okay. happy got tears. You. I got you. I got you. <laughs> But um, I, I um, like, I was still a bit out of it at that point. So who knows what I was saying? But I may have, as I said, with the other thing, like I may have recollected that then, but then forgotten about it until now. And that's reminded me because, you know, the mind does do such right. weird things with trauma. So you wake up from a coma and the path to all things is far from easy. Like, tell us a little bit about that, but then also lead us with the question of, is there ever a point when you're realizing that you're up from the coma now, but they're telling you what that means for life ahead? All the rehab, everything. Like, that you're like, why the fuck did I wake up from this coma? Oh, exactly. So they tell me it took me about two weeks to wake up properly. So in that time, I was kind of um, in a delirium still. I was very confused. Um, For instance, some things that happened, like I knew I was in hospital, but in my mind, I was going, I was in my lounge room and I was going, in and out of the hospital through my TV. 
So I'd step into my TV and I was in the hospital. I'd step out of the TV and mm. I was back at home, but I couldn't go anywhere else. The The hospital was the only place I could go. But, you know, clearly I was walking, stepping in and out of it. And there was one point where I'd somehow in this delirium left the hospital and was at this other place. I don't know where it was. And I thought I'm sitting on this chair in like this big room and I thought, how am I going to get back to the hospital? I can't move. I can't get back and there's no one to help me. And it seemed like hours and hours and hours went by. And then Kayla, my daughter, appeared and I said, oh, thank God, how did you find me here? And I can't remember what she said, but anyway, I, then I was back in the hospital and it was a couple of months later, you know, when I was um, just got home and everything and I said, oh, you know, I had this really weird dream that, you know, I left the hospital and you found me and I said, you know, how did you find me here? And she said, oh, there was one day I went to the hospital and you just looked at me and said, how did you find me here? Oh wow. Oh wow. <laughs> um so there was that, you know, weird alternate life where I was stepping in and out of hospital. I can vaguely remember them saying the nurses coming to me and saying, Do you know where you are? And I'd say hospital. Mm -hmm. And they said, What hospital? And I could not think of the name of it. So the hospital was called the Alfred. There's a TV show that's been on here in Australia, like a reality show about a hospital called the Royal Royal Prince Alfred. Okay. And that's all I could think of was RPA, Royal Prince Alfred. But I knew that wasn't the one. So I kept saying to the nurses, it's the, the royal one. And they didn't <laughs> have a clue what I meant. But in my right. mind, I knew there was Alfred in it. Right. I was trying to tell them that. And they're just looking at me weird. So I'm sure I had many really weird, stupid conversations with the nurses mm -hmm. because they said I was just so confused. Right. Um, another thing that was really hard when I came out of the coma was distinguishing between day and night. Um, so I was sleeping during the day thinking it was night and I'm thinking, this place is really weird because it's still so <laughs> light in the nighttime. Like what's going right. on? Where am I? I thought I was in another country. Um, and they kept saying, you know, why are you sleeping during the day and not at night? And I said, no, I'm sleeping at night. Right. No, right. You're, you've got it wrong. So in the end, uh, Dylan, my son, bought me like this little old-fashioned alarm clock and, you know, sat that there. And for some reason that helped me work out the time and gradually get used to the nice. difference between night and day. But apparently that's something that is quite common after you've been in a coma for a long time. Homie, I take a nap and I wake up from the 45 minute nap and I don't know what <laughs> decade we're in. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that type of thing is quite common. So from the day that you got sick and they had to rush you to the hospital, until the day you got home. How long was that? Do you know? Um, it was two months. Damn. Yeah. So I've gone in in March and the weather was still really nice. You know, we're wearing short sleeves and everything. I've come out in May um, here in Australia, of course, and, and the weather's cold. And I'm thinking, 
what the hell, you know. I kept thinking that we were still in March. It took me a long time to realise that, you know, wow. it was it was May, not March. And I was even saying things, oh, yeah, that, that happened a couple of weeks ago. And, no, that happened weeks, uh, months ago. And I got home and there was even my birthday cards were still, like, on the TV unit um, from February, like the end of February. And what are my birthday cards doing here then? Like if it's May, but you know, the kids didn't want to put them away. Well, and that kind of leads me to something else, which is like, so our book came out. Yes. It was your first book as a published author, your birthday. Yeah. We were supposed to get on a phone because we were supposed to present together at Camp Widow. Yes. So I'm sitting there with Allie. And if you're new to the podcast, like Allie's my current partner. And we're driving one day. And I'm like, I don't like she's not gonna make it. Like that's like I'm like, she's not gonna make it. These messages I'm getting from her kids. Like I just it doesn't look like she's gonna make it. And I don't remember exactly how she phrased it, but she said something along the lines of like, what the fuck? Like after the death of Tony and now you work so hard to rebuild yourself and your life and your first book comes out yeah. and we're going to go and we're going to present and like, it's your birthday. And it's just like, Oh my God, she's, she's got all this forward momentum. And now you got what kind of flesh bacteria eating virus. It was just like, we were sitting there like, what the fuck? Um, but let me take it back for a second. So when you first get home and you, you see your home, you're walking through the front door. How are you feeling? It was a really strange feeling. Um, it was very emotional. And, like, I'd pushed so hard to get out of hospital. I was really determined to get out. And the main reason was because Kayla was driving to Melbourne every day that she could around work, around three little kids, and she was exhausted. I could see she was exhausted. I was really scared that she was going to have an accident and I couldn't have lived with that. And and I just thought I have to get home as quick as I can to make it easier on all the family. So, you know, I kind of pushed myself um, physically to get to a point where they'd let me come home because originally I was meant to go to an inpatient rehab unit, but I really didn't want to go to that because after having such a serious bacterial infection, all infections scare you. So the thought yeah. of going to another hospital really scared me. But um, I remember, you know, pulling up out the front of my house and they got my walker out and I'm walking up the path to go in the front door and it's just the the weirdest feeling. And um, I guess then that sort of started a whole new set of challenges because I was learning pretty much basic things, how to take care of myself, like how to shower and just even walk, um, you know, from my bedroom to the kitchen or to the living room or whatever. And everything I was doing just took so much energy and it just felt so hard and it was a whole new, whole new challenge coming home. So, going through anything like this is so traumatic and so horrible 
By the way, before I ask you this question, how many surgeries did you have in total? I had 15 in total. Just ridiculous, right? What you went through. But you also went through it without Tony. Yeah. Um, It would have been hard enough had the love of your life been by your side. So just tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, and look, that was one of the hardest, hardest things, not having him there by my side and, you know, having that support from a partner. And in saying that, my family, my my kids, my parents, my friends, you know, everyone was fantastic. It's just not quite the same as having your special person there with you. And, um, you know, people couldn't come every day and being two hours from home and from family and from everyone I knew was super hard. There was also COVID restrictions still in place. So um, there was a limit of one person being able to visit at a time, two people in a day, the 90-minute limit on the visit. So um, it was a, a, a very short part of the day that I could actually have someone visit and there'd be sometimes three or four days when I didn't have any visitors and it was really, really hard. The other thing was that I was in a coma and really, really sick when it was Tony's anniversary of his death and everyone, like everyone thought that if I was going to die, that was going to be the day, his anniversary and yeah, it must have been so hard for everyone. I just find it, I hate that I put them through that. Um, of course, I had no choice, but it's really hard knowing what I put them through for that those weeks that I was in the coma, having to say goodbye, how sick I was, and then Tony's anniversary. That narrative, you know, come on now, don't make me yell at you in front of everyone. <laughs> that, that narrative, come on now. Don't even <laughs> don't even let the words I put them through come out of your mouth. Yeah, I know, I know. It's hard not to think that. I mean, because I know. I think because we know, don't we? Like we know what it feels like to watch someone you mm-hmm. love dying. We know that anticipatory yeah. grief. Yep. We know what's ahead if your loved one dies. And yep. that's what hits me because I know mm-hmm. all that. That's what hit me mm-hmm. about that whole thing. Yep. Yep. So what helped you get through this time? All of it, like not only like in the hospital, but coming back home, having to learn to walk again, all of the things, what helped you to get through it? Well, when I first woke up and understood what had happened, and as I'm lying there, like I'm lying in this bed that I'd been in for about six weeks at that point, and I couldn't move. I couldn't do anything for myself. I had no strength whatsoever. Like I couldn't even hold my phone. And I'm lying there thinking, why in the fuck didn't they just let me die? Like why did they fight so hard to keep me alive? And how could you not? Yeah. Like how could you not at least have those moments? Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I guess, you know, you're lying there and you've got like a nappy or a diaper as you call it on and, People have to wipe your bum. People have to bathe you in the bed and you just can't do anything. I mean, the the first time they tried to stand me 
up was the weirdest thing. Like I stood up for about two seconds on this machine thing and I was all dizzy and wobbly and I had no strength and I thought, I can't do this. I really cannot do this. I give up. Like it's all too hard. I don't want to, I don't want to do it. And then I guess as the days went by, I kind of started noticing things around me and I noticed, you know, my kids, my family and my grandkids turning up like they're making the the two-hour trip to visit me for 90 minutes and then the two-hour trip home. You know, they kept turning up. And I noticed how they made me feel like was seeing them was just was that little glimmer in my day. Yeah. And I noticed all the, the like the hospital staff and my medical team. It's quite a huge medical team for so many yeah. different things. And they're working so hard and they're working long hours and and the nurses and they're all so good to me and caring and want to help me and thinking, I can't let them down. Like, I've got to try and, like, I don't want to let myself down. Like, what am I thinking? Right. So I start looking for more and more glimmers in, every, in each day, you know, just little things that make me smile and help me get through another day because the days were bloody long in there. And I started thinking about a guy called Matt Galinsky. Now, Matt Galinsky is an Australian chef. He was, um, you know, one of the first celebrity chefs when that sort of started becoming a thing. And in 2011, I think it was, Christmas 2011, his house caught fire from Christmas tree lights. And unfortunately, his wife and three little girls died in that fire and he was severely burnt. And Matt was actually the keynote speaker at Camp Widow in Australia the first time they had it here, which was 2021. And I heard Matt talk and his courage and determination during that time really stuck with me. So I'm lying in hospital and I'm just thinking, wow, you know, what must Matt have been going through? Because even though I had something different, it, I was in the burns unit because it involved, you know, a lot of similar treatment to what burns victims go through. And, you know, I just kept thinking about him and I remembered his words from that time I saw him speak and I remembered his determination and I thought, you know what, if he can do it, I can do it too. Yeah. Yep. So that was a huge one. And I have actually, as you know, John, been in contact with Matt since yeah. I've come out of hospital and he's agreed to be a guest on the podcast for us. Yeah. Really yeah. looking to having that chat with him. Yeah. I mean, his story, like I can't, I can't, right? Like I can't. Um, But again, it goes to show you the power of like when you share your story. Yeah. Years later, you're in a coma fighting for your life. And then you wake up and you're having moments of like, why the hell did they bring me out of this? And you remember his story and his words, yeah. right? Yeah. So when we share our story, it can help people, even if we have no idea that it helped people down the road. That's um, right. So tell us how you're doing today. I know you went to Camp Widow. I know you I made did. it there. We didn't, so... we didn't get to speak. We will speak eventually. We I will. Know you made it there. I know you're starting your coaching again 
So give us an update on where you're at now. Yeah. So Camp Widow was my big goal. So I found that when I was in hospital, it started, I started having small goals. So I'd set these small goals um, to achieve. So even when I got home, it was still small goals. So for instance, it might've started off being, okay, I want to be able to dry my feet myself. Then I want to be able to put my socks on myself. Then I want to be able to put my shoes on myself. So I had these small goals and I, you know, when I achieved them, like that win was just so good. I celebrated every little win, but I also wanted to have this bigger goal. I remember the last day in hospital, the day that my plastic surgeon team came around to visit the last time when I was in hospital. And I said to them, can I go to Brisbane in August? And they said, yes, you can. In fact, we recommend that you do. You need something to look forward to and something fit something for you. They didn't know what it was for. Um, they might have changed their mind if they didn't know I was sitting on the right. beach doing nothing, but right. I wasn't going to tell them that. I got my permission, so that's it. So I went to Camp Widow and it was a big effort to get there. It was a lot of help from my team of therapists um, that I'm working with for my rehab um, to get me well enough physically to go there. It was a lot of support from friends who I went with to push me in the wheelchair at the airport to help me with my luggage, to help me with all sorts of stuff. It was amazing. But, you know, the grief community, the community, the widow community, like being around my people was the best therapy. It was amazing. Um, Seeing people that I knew, meeting new people, meeting people that, um, you know, listen to our podcast. Um, it was just really, really good therapy. I was exhausted by the end of it, but I did take time each day to have a rest. Um, and I'm so, so glad I went and achieved that huge goal. And, you know, next year my aim is to speak there, be a presenter. Well, you should be giving a keynote. Should you not? <laughs> I'd love to give the keynote. Yeah. Yeah. That's, you should be. Yeah, I'd love to give the keynote. So, um, so glad I did that, even though I did come back with COVID and that knocked me around for several weeks, put my re- rehab back a bit, but I'm just starting to move forward again now. Good. Good. Um, I haven't even asked you this question, so I have no idea how you're going to answer it. How is the walking going? With the walking, it's getting there. It's been such a slow journey through the walking. Uh, I'm mostly using the walking stick now, or ca- do you call it cane? Is it cane that you uh, Yeah, yeah, you can call it cane, yep. Yeah, so I'm mostly using that now. Um, I'm doing very short stints of walking without it between rails at my rehab um just a few steps and it feels really weird um once I'm walking again I'm never going to take walking for granted (laughs) like right it's Mm -hmm. crazy like it's something that we all just do without even thinking about it and this Mm -hmm. not having done it unaided for seven months is just oh my god I can't wait till I can walk unaided again yeah yeah so so, you know, you talked about 
Makalinsky's keynote at camp and how, what was it, a year later? Was it a year later or two years later? Uh, two years. Okay. So you hear him give this keynote at camp, widow, about losing his wife and his three daughters in a fire. And two years later, that serves as inspiration to you to not give up, to not quit, to somehow, some way, keep going, right? Yeah. So if somebody's listening to this, whether they take some kind of unbelievably profound inspiration from this now, or maybe in the future, they think back to it when they need it, and they're profoundly inspired by it. What's your message to them? Oh, so many messages. So I guess except well, don't give us the whole keynote. Don't give us the whole keynote <laughs> right now. Just give us no. just give us a few bullet points. <laughs> I guess accepting that there will be hard days. There always will be harder days. And also to keep going on those harder days, even if it's slow, like however you can, just keep putting one foot in front of the other one second, one minute, one hour at a time. You don't have to have all the answers now. And also to acknowledge how far you've come. And I need to keep getting, reminding myself of this now yeah. even because like, I think, oh, I'm so frustrated. I can't walk without this stick yet. I'm so frustrated. It takes so much energy to cook a meal. I'm getting so tired. But then, you know, it was only a few months ago that I was in bed and I couldn't do anything for myself. And I would dream then about being able to get around with a stick or a walker or being able to prepare some food or go out for lunch with friends. Like I would dream about doing those things. And now here I am doing them, but I'm still putting myself down for not thinking that I'm far enough ahead. A big thing for me has been allowing people to help me because, like, I was Tony's carer for most yep. of our relationship. I'm used to being the carer. I'm not used yep. to being the one that gets cared for. And right. I've had to accept that because I've had no choice. Like, I simply have not been able to do these things physically. So accepting that help has been a huge, huge thing for me to be able to do and you know even coming home from hospital and and with my son Matty um having to do everything for me um you know it just felt so weird but I guess I'm more accepting of it now because I know it's something that I I had to do and now I am starting to do things more myself but also as I said have small goals don't just think about the big picture. Have small goals that you can celebrate those wins along the way. Have one bigger goal too, but, um, you know, like Camp Widow was my goal and now Camp yep. Widow next year is my next goal. Yep. Um, and there's lots of other goals as well, but um, have something to look forward to. I guess make space for your emotions. So, yeah, you're not going to feel on top of the world all the time. That's okay. No one is. Even if nothing is going wrong in your life, there's no major illness or no grief or no trauma. We still all have those off days um, 
you know, where things don't feel right or we have those different emotions. That's normal. That's life. Allow those in and give yourself some grace. Yes to all of that. The one thing I want to point out is you're human. And I think that gratitude is an amazing, life-changing thing. I do. I also think, like most things in life, it's not permanent. Yeah. I think that we we have moments where we're like, I'm so grateful for this thing. And I give really personal examples. I'm not going to give them right now. But with my clients, I give really personal examples, right? Like, I am so profoundly grateful for this. And I will be grateful every moment of every day for the rest of my life. And I think I could be wrong. You might tell me a year or two from now, hey, John, you're wrong. And I'm still grateful for every second (laughs) of everything. But I think that it starts to drift away because this human experience is difficult, et cetera, et cetera. But we can do the work to return ourselves to a place of gratitude. So my message to you for a second, and to anybody listening, is, you know, if you start to lose some of that gratitude, if in, you know, eight months, you're annoyed with something else, and you're not sitting there so thankful that you can walk again, or that you can bathe yourself again, right? Like, that's okay. You don't need to beat yourself up for that either. It's just about doing the work to return yourself. To the place of gratitude. Does that make sense? Yes. I know you, it makes sense to you, right? Yeah. (laughs) So, John, I think that's enough about what I've been up to for the last seven months. And uh, you've had some pretty exciting stuff happening yourself in your life, especially in July. And knowing you the way that I do, I know that it's been a pretty big goal of yours to be a a keynote speaker at Camp Widow. And this year in July, at Camp Widow, San Diego, you achieved that goal. Tell us a bit about that. So we're turning it on me now, huh? Um, (laughs) Yeah, so my goal actually is to be a full-time public speaker. So Camp Widow was a great opportunity to step into that that ultimate goal, like you said. Baby steps, right? Smaller steps and then reach the the big-time goal. Um, So, like, it was an absolute honor when they asked me. I... They actually asked me at Camp Widow, Tampa. So I'm sitting there like I'm at Camp Widow, Tampa, doing what I love speaking um, with friends, meeting new friends. I'm getting asked to do the keynote, but I'm also like worried as fuck about you, right? (laughs) So there was a lot going on. Um, And I was so excited for months. And I started having all these ideas for the keynote. And I started writing down the bullet points in my phone. And I was so excited. And then about two weeks before the keynote, I started freaking out. Um, There was 500 people there. That to date is the biggest speaking gig I have done. And I started telling Allie, like, I'm going to shit myself on stage. Like, I'm going to shit myself on stage. And I'm going to have a mic on me and everybody's going to be able to hear me shit myself on stage. (laughs) That's how nervous I was. No joke. Um, And it really, that lasted for pretty much the entire two weeks until the morning of. And I woke up the morning of cool, calm, collected, confident, ready to go. Um, Went out there, thought it was pretty good. Not my best, but I was happy with it. Can always get better. And look, I have watched the replay of your keynote and I've watched it a few times. And I must say the first time I watched it, I had a few tears because I knew how much that meant to you. And my friend, it was absolutely amazing. 
you could, Thank you. I believe you could not have done a better job of it. Like it was, it was impactful. It was inspiring. It was heartfelt. It was funny. It was moving. It was everything that you want in a keynote speech at Camp Widow. It was absolutely amazing. And, and if anybody wants to watch it, it is on YouTube. So you can go to my exactly. website and find my YouTube. Yep. Yes, yes. I highly recommend it. If you haven't watched it yet, go ahead and watch it. It's amazing. Very proud of you, Johnny Pooh. Thank you. Um, quick note about that. So, sorry, I just coughed in everybody's ear. Deal with it. We, You haven't heard me cough in seven <laughs> months. Um, so I'm sitting there with a friend two days before the keynote. So at Camp Widow, two days before I'm about to speak. And... I said to my friend, you know, I have a question for you. I said, should I wear my hat to the keynote? And my friend looked at me and she goes, I think you should go as John Polo. And this friend is actually a client of mine. And I said, fuck you. You're trying to coach me. But I said, <laughs> I taught you well. And I wore my hat to the keynote. And it's interesting because like a lot of the big time motivational speakers in the world now will go in jeans and a t-shirt and a ball cap and they always say like dress for the job you want and i'm like well that's the job i want and that's how i feel most comfortable and when i was on stage i was actually much more comfortable in my own skin than i've ever been before because i went as myself right yeah. so i don't know why i'm mentioning that other than i think that we all try to fit into societal expectations yes and the fact that on that day I said, fuck it, I'm going to go as myself and I'm going to be more authentic really helped me. Because as you know, like, I mean, I thought I was going to shit myself for two weeks. <laughs> yes. Well, the good news is you didn't shit yourself. <laughs> well, how do you know that? <laughs> oh, oh, well, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, I woke up. Yourself. <laughs> I woke up and I was good to go that morning. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I really love that what you just said, though, like to be the authentic you. And, yeah. you know, people might have recognized you without your cap. Well, I don't, that's the first time I ever wore my cap to Camp Whittle or any speaking gig ever. Ah, like okay. I, yeah, I don't wear it normally. Yeah. Um, but I just want but, to be more authentic. And as be more you said, me. you felt more comfortable. So, yeah. you know, that worked. It yeah. you know, made you feel comfortable in saying what you had to say and, and it was awesome. So, yeah, great, great idea. Yep, you can go watch but, it. Well, you can't watch it because you already watched it. But anybody I'll watch, else can I'll, watch I'll it probably, I'll probably watch okay. it again some point. All right. Now, yeah. that was fantastic. That was a big goal achieved. But there was something else exciting that happened while you are in San Diego that weekend. What was that? Yeah, there was. <laughs> what was that? You tell me. <laughs> um, she's in the other room, so she can probably hear me. So I got engaged. Yes. Woo, congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> That, that was amazing. And I know, you know, you had actually mentioned to me several weeks before that you were planning to propose to Ali in San Diego. And I was so excited, like I could barely contain myself. And I knew the day that you were going to do it. And I'm here that day and I just couldn't relax. I'm, come on, Johnny Pooh, message me and tell me, you know, have you done it? Like I'm waiting for this news. And in the end it got to me and I had to message you and I just sent this message. Any news yet? 
and I got this message back with these two photos of, uh, you know, hand, you know, finger with the, oh, yeah. the engagement ring on it from Ali. And yeah. oh, it was so exciting. It was so excited. So happy for you both. You guys are just awesome together. Most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> You're still Most human. of the time. Most of the time. You were only one of a few humans that I told that I was proposing. Yeah. It's interesting because funny story. So a couple months ago, I went and I got an iPad. And Allie has pretty much confiscated my iPad. It's her iPad now, apparently. <laughs> um, so whenever I get a text message... It comes through on my phone, but it also comes through on the iPad. Uh, so you, <laughs> I didn't have the heart to tell you, given everything you were going through. I, she didn't see it, but on a number of occasions, you texted me and you were like, oh, are you practically? <laughs> oh, no. I'm laughing. You should have told me. <laughs> I'm laughing because they can't see right now, but I could see you. So you would text like, oh, are you practicing the keynote and your engagement speech? <laughs> and... She didn't see it because she just so happened to not have the iPad in those moments. Oh. But I'm sitting there like, oh, my fucking, like, no, like, no, she's going to send this at the wrong time. Oh, she, um, but I just didn't have the heart me. to say, no, I didn't have the heart. <laughs> you going, you were going through too much. I was like, oh, I'll just pray for the best. Um, yeah. Oh, you could tell I was excited. <laughs> yeah, we were excited. It was good. Yep. And I did it actually on the beach where we're moving next yeah. year. So, yep. Yeah. Oh, very special. So that's enough about me. Um, <laughs> let's give them, our listeners, a quick sneak peek at the season ahead. Sounds good. All right. So we have a couple great interviews. Um, we do actually have two episodes that we recorded before you got sick. Yeah. One is an interview um, and one is more of a um, share your story with us type question. We have Matt, as you were saying, for another interview. Um, we're also going to have, obviously, a bunch of new episodes with new content. There's going to be a number of episodes. I don't know if it's two or three. Maybe you remember that are replays. So some of our more popular episodes, we're going to replay again for you guys, right? Yeah. Is that yeah, right? I think, okay. I think two. Yeah, two, I think. Um, I think one is a holiday episode. Yeah. And then the other one we haven't talked about yeah although i have one in mind um oh, i do too It'd be interesting to see if right. have the well, same we'll, one in mind we'll fight it out <laughs> um i'm kind of excited about this season because we are going to take a little bit of a different approach and that we're going to kind of let it fly we're going to try to come and we do pre-record these episodes but we're going to try to record where there's absolutely no editing needed um and Carolyn and I were having a discussion about this right before we started recording this episode. And I said, you know, should we tell them we're going to be a little more unfiltered this year? <laughs> and then I said to myself, wait, like, we've already been really unfiltered in, in all the episodes we've done. Like, we haven't really held back. And then I said to myself, yeah, we did a sex episode. We did. And I talked about, yeah, and I talked about masturbating to my deceased wife and how I couldn't do that anymore after six months after she passed and how that was a secondary loss. And I'm like, I don't think we need to become more unfiltered. I think we're unfiltered enough. I, I think we're unfiltered enough.
Thank you for listening to the My Person Died To podcast. For full information on our books, coaching services and other offerings, visit our websites, carolyngowercoaching.com and johnpolocoaching.com. Remember to rate, review and subscribe. And if you found this podcast helpful, please spread the word so that we're able to support more people through grief. Thank you.